right, Tom, our, our next question comes from Ingeborg. Uh, she is asking about dream language and its connection to reality. Ingeborg, if, you, if you'd like to read your question. Yes, well, so, of course, you know, it's some two dreams I had uh, in October and November. Um, on October 12th, um, I was in an area and I had a book in my hand and I looked into the register of the book and there was uh, a keyword. That keyword meant third level essence Shakti. And when I read this keyword and I said, "Yo, this is a good, uh, this is a good choice." I said, "I, I take third level essence Shakti." Uh, instantaneously, I found myself in an in an Indian temple. And there was a, 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 an entity, a very beautiful uh, uh, entity with blue skin. I guess it was an Indian goddess, I, I guess. And uh, she, uh, yes, she turned to me and explained to me. Uh, so this is a quote. She said, what you know as fragrant hand lotion actually has to be applied like this. And then she showed me how to do this. She 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 started in the back here, and she she said you have to to make six little cross marks from in the back, and then in the base of the skull, and then on the forehead, and then here, and then on the chest, and then on the. Uh, she really used this term. She said. Uh, you have to make a cross on the moment. Who is this yet? Um, Processus Sifoideus, which is um, the the end uh, moment, the uh, the lower end of the breastbone. And at the end, after these crosses around uh, the the back from here, the last cross uh, on the on the left shoulder, you have to make an, a small crescent. And so she said, uh, yes, she said, this is how to apply these things correctly. And then in a dream on November 5th, I stood somewhere else in the front of a mirror. And I looked at myself. I was completely normally dressed. Everything was quite normal, nothing exceptional at all. And then I stood in front of the mirror, and after some seconds, I said to my own surprise, <laughs> uh, Shakti, do you want to be my wife? And then uh, instantaneously, uh, um, an, an invisible force entered my whole body. In the mirror, I couldn't see anything. Uh, uh, but I, I, I felt it came from back from the head. And I here I saw little waves here little waves coming down from my face. And um, then, um, yes, the, the, yes, and it was on my face and on my chest, only in the upper part of the body. But then after some seconds, everything ended in a, in a very distinct and strong embracement. So, but there was nothing to be seen besides the little waves here. Nothing was to be seen in my head. My hair became a little bit curly then. So, and then uh, this was the end of the dream, and I, you know, I woke up and stood like this in my bed. 
uh, yes. And uh, between these two dreams, uh, I, I had a journey in Astral City where I did a lot of things and there was somebody who told me this. He, he, he mentioned how, uh, you don't know, he said how he would uh, classify me. He said, she is on the move as dogmatus. Yes, so uh, I, I, of, I, of course, I, uh, I looked up what dogmatus means, but dogmatus is, is not a normal Latin term, but it's, of course, you can say dogmatus, it has to do something with dogma <laughs> and with a lot of uh, theory and so on. So this is, uh, this is on, this is the dream, dream side and on, in the real, in the real world, there are several huge projects um, that are taking shape. And uh, so I'm, yes, I, I think it's useful to have Shakti to, to put these uh, projects forward. And so this is my question. Uh, uh, are these dreams part of a multidimensional multi reality or are they just metaphorical language uh, of my dream self? So it's just, an, you know, does my higher self speak to me in these dreams or is it, is, does it mean is it really an, another reality where these things take place? What you're experiencing is you're developing connections to a process. You're developing a, a, an interface, shall we say, with the larger consciousness system. You're developing a process. Now you have a person, Shakti, that you are connected with in a way, married to uh, in, in a way, and this is, a, is like a, a, an entree. It's like you're building a structure to enable you now to make these connections, to get information, to talk, to have, uh, um, to have these experiences. You need some sort of structure, some sort of, of um, context in which to have your experiences. Experiences without context are generally very confusing. And for us, being uh, habituated as we are to physical reality, they're, they're, hard, they're hard to deal with. We, we like things within a context that we can understand. So I think what you're doing is you're building up a context. You're meeting people, uh, making connections, and all of this it will build to a context for further experiences. So this, I say, is a, is, is a uh, I would say, is a kind of a lead-in, an initial constructing the context sort of thing that's going on. And you should, you should go with it. Continue to construct it. Uh, continue with your interactions with this person and uh, explore it. But I think that's really the, the, you know, the more fundamental meaning of all of this and what's going on is that you are building a context, an interface, a way of interacting with the larger consciousness system through this context that you're, that you're building. Now, the fact that it's, uh, you know, how do you apply lotion and, uh, you know, you come up with words like uh, dogmatis that don't necessarily mean anything, that's the specific content but just think of that that sort of thing as just you're just working with something. It's like you're you're first learning to do trivial things. You're first learning to go through the motions. You're learning to pay attention. You're learning to ask the questions. 
to be present. Um, all those things, it's that process is what you're learning. Don't worry too much or try to read too much into the actual content of the, the lotion or the words or that sort of thing. It's really the process of doing it is what's important, not the thing you're doing. Whether you're putting on a lotion or not is irrelevant. The fact that you've made this connection and you're able to follow those directions and keep that connection going, and that now you've made some kind of, of um, I'll even use the word permanent, relationship with this entity. Now, again, this entity is just something else that's bubbled up out of the larger consciousness system, just like we are bubbled up out of the larger consciousness system. So now, is it, you know, so then we get to your question, that being what's going on here, and that's what it would seem to me. The lotion is important. The word dogmatis is important. The fact that you had the experience and that you're learning to go through process within the experience. It's not just, wow, look at all the pretty lights. You say a lot of people have that process, but there's no, there's no context there in which to interact, to do things. So you're, you're getting a, a context now in which to interact and do things. And this is the way people also get their guides. You know, the guide is basically a context for which you can pose questions or problems or issues and get information back. Because without the context, we humans have a hard time dealing with the information. You know, information has to come from someone, and it has to be about something. And without the context, just information that appears, we really don't know what to do with that. We can't uh, classify it and put it in a pigeonhole. So you're building up contexts. And you may have dozens of such contexts eventually build up in which you can do various things. And consider each of these contexts a tool, a tool set that you get to use, a set of uh, interfaces that you get to use. And some will be good for some things. Some will be good for other things. You know, they're not just necessarily all the same. So you're in, a, you're in a construction process of building these contexts by which you can, in the future, um, you know, use for something that's valuable to you, something more significant than how to put lotion on or you know, other sorts of things like that. That's just kind of busy work just to get you experienced in following the directions, understanding the directions, you know, that you could actually understand what was being said to you, that you could go through that, and you were, you were cogent and, you know, willing to go there. You see, some people, if you started to lead them that direction, they'd immediately jump in with their intellect and say, well, what's that all about? Motion? That's stupid. That's silly. I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm just making this up and they'd get out of the whole situation. But part of your training now is to not do that with your intellect. It's to be part of it. Uh, embrace it. Go with it. You see, follow it. And you, that's part of what you're learning. So it doesn't matter what it is you're following, whether it's something about applying lotion or not. That's not the point. It's that you're learning to engage with these things. And it's the engagement is the point of the lesson, not what you're particularly engaging with at that, at that time. So these things are something for you to work with and continue. And uh, when you are uh, meditating, make that connection. Say that word. 
go back to connect with that bean and any other beans that you have. You know, these are all contexts that you can build and create, uh, make more out of them. Don't just let them go and drop and say, wow, that was kind of an interesting dream. Wow, I wonder what I'll get next. You see, that would be to waste an opportunity. Use these contexts and uh, use them to build other structures on, and you will get better and better at engaging in the, in the non-physical. And it makes no difference whether you call it a dream or an out-of-body or anything else. It's all the same sort of thing. You are engaging with that reality system. Now, you're saying, is, that, uh, is it just metaphorical stuff you know, coming out of your, your, your dream, or is there some other place where this is really going on? Well, that's really not a good question because there, you know, there is not some other place where this is really going on. You know, all of reality is just information. You're getting information, and information is as real as it gets. So don't uh, get caught in a trap of trying to say, is this some real place that I'm going? Is that a real temple and a real person, or was it just my imagination, or was it just a dream? Those are not good questions. What you got was information. You were interpreting that information, yes, and you put your own metaphors to that information because you can't do anything else. You can't ever, even you know, now, just us talking with each other, you still have to take in what I tell you and put your own, put your own interpretation to it. See, we can't ever do anything more than that in any reality frame, and that's what you do in all reality frames. You take in information, you interpret it, and now you're learning to engage in it in, you know, in a non-physical reality frame. You're getting engaged there. You're building up interactive structures. And that's very, that's very good. So it's, it's, it's not really a good question to say, you know, how real is this? Am I really at some other place? There are no places. There's just information. You're getting a data stream that has nothing to do with this physical reality. So, you know, we call that, you know, non-physical reality some other data stream, some other reality frame, and that doesn't make it a place. It's just another data stream. But it's another, it's another way, it's another um, connection that you have to have experience, experience that you can grow from, experience that you can learn from. So you can think, well, I've got all these opportunities to have experience. I've got my experience in this physical reality, you know, the people I know, the things I do, the jobs I have, and so on, and I have experiences there, and I can learn from those, and I have experiences in a dream world, and I have experiences in an out-of-body world, or in a lucid dreaming world, and all these are equivalents. Not that one's more or less real than the other. They're all just data streams in which you get to make choices and experience. And it sounds like you're making good choices because you didn't jump in with your intellect and then dismiss the whole thing because it was silly. Oh, putting lotion on my back, right? I want something here, you know, that's, that's, that's meaningful. I don't want to do the silly stuff. I'm just making this up. Instead of doing that, you went with it. You worked with it. You engaged with it. And that's learning. That's training for you to be able to do that. And the better and, and more easy that gets for you, you'll find there's lots of things that you can engage with. But first, you have to learn to engage, which generally means telling your intellect to sit down and be quiet. It means working from your being level, and it means not uh, having any beliefs, expectations. You see, when, when somebody says, oh, that's silly, 
putting lotion on my back. That's an expectation. They're looking for something else. They're looking for something that is, uh, um, well, I don't know, uh, you know, big, you know, heavy, meaningful, uh, change my life. You know, I'm not going to change my life by putting lotion on my back. So they reject it because they have expectations of something else. They have beliefs that it needs to be some other way. And those things get in the way. First, you have to learn to engage. And that's a process you're going through. So I'd say they're very positive dreams. Don't let them just go off as their dreams. Talk to those entities. Go back to that structure you're building. Whether you're building it in the dream world or some other place or whatever is irrelevant. It makes no difference. It's all the same. It's just data. You're getting data streams. Where does the data stream come from? Well, all data streams basically come from consciousness. Consciousness is an information system. So what you're engaging with is some facet, some part of the larger consciousness system. That's a good thing. You see, the question should be, what can I learn from it? Where can I go with this? What can I build out of it? See, that's, the, that's the question. So don't just let it go and like a dream. You, know, you have a dream, that's just a dream, and now you go have another dream. They're not, they're not connected. Your dreams are all individual one-offs. But... They don't have to be. You can build context out of this experience. Go back and, and uh, interact with Shante again and again, and you will build up some kind of structure. And You'll find that you may end up with a friendship. You may end up with something that uh, is very meaningful, is an aha thing, does give you information that's a whole lot more meaningful than it lotion on your back, but you can't get there until you develop it. You know, it's just like making friends here. You meet somebody, right, and it's not going to be a big, meaningful thing right away. You've got to get to know them. You've got to build a rapport. You've got to find out who they are. They need to find out who you are. You need to build context. And within that context and within that trust that builds out of that context, now you can get into things that are more significant or meaningful. But first, you have to build the context, and it's the same there. So we kind of go out a body or we do these things and we just want suddenly to have it all handed to us but you really need to construct the context in which it becomes meaningful build trust in the character it's just a different data stream the different way that you are interacting with the larger consciousness system that will enable you to make choices and learn and if you work with it and develop it and don't just let it be a one-off then uh, it'll probably turn into something very useful for you. And it may not just be this one. This one may have just been a, a lead-in, just, you know, just to bring you into the process. You may get different ones. And eventually, you'll, though, you will find relationships that, that grow and mature over time. And these are very helpful. Because now you actually have another learning space that is, um, what do we say, uh, you know, it's there when you want it. It's interactive. You're familiar with it. There are entities and things that you know well. Trust has been built up. Now you start to produce a interaction with these other data streams that are really useful, rather than just oh, I talked to some entity and he said this, and uh, somebody told me how to put lotion on my back, and oh, you know, I got these funny words. And then the stuff is just a whole series of unrelated stuff that's kind of nonsense, and it's fun maybe, but it doesn't really go anywhere. You have to make it go somewhere, and that's 
that's the training you're getting is how to make it go somewhere, how to build the relationship. Relationships have to be built, you know, no matter where you are. You don't just, you know, meet somebody and immediately, uh, you know, get handed some kind of uh, fundamental, uh, you know, great thing that you can go use. It usually doesn't work like that. You're not really going to get much out of it. You know, if somebody just dumps something on you, it's kind of a wild gee whiz. What does all this mean? And then you forget about it because you haven't developed the, the rapport and the connection to really get it at a level where it's useful. So I hope that uh, answers your question. And there'll probably be a million other people who hear this after uh, Justin gets it up that will have been doing similar things. And they say, wow, I had all those kinds of experiences too, but I blew them off. You see, most people just blow them off and don't build constructs out of them. And just think of it as data. It's not, is this real? It's, is this useful? Well, not yet. What you're getting out of it is how to apply lotion. That's not necessarily real useful. But that's just the beginning. It's just a get to know you. It's a, how do you engage? How do you maintain that? How do you get your intellect to just let you go with it and then see where it leads? So if you get nothing more than lotion on your back, you may decide, well, I'll let this one go. You know, I'll go develop something else that, that turns out to be uh, you know, more profound than, than lotion application. But maybe this one will be profound. You won't know until you develop it is the thing. So the point is not that is is not is it real, but is it useful? And some of them will be useful, some of them may not. And the ones that are useful will be very, very useful. And you'll learn a lot. And you'll make some choices there and you'll learn from them. So yeah, just keep keep working with it. This is a this is not something that's a quick a quick thing to do. You will work with this for you know another year or two or three or four before all the pieces start to come together and it makes something uh, significant, something that is profound. But that'll take time. And again, you judge it by how useful is it. What am I learning? How am I progressing? You know, what is this doing for me? And if if it's useful, then it's good. And it really doesn't matter where it comes from. It's just a data stream. If you can find use out of it, then it's good. If you can't, then it's wasting your time, regardless of what the source is. We get very enamored with sources. Oh, what was the source? Is this real or not? The source isn't that significant. It's how helpful is this to me? What does it do for me that's really useful? That's the, that's the question. Thank you. Thank you. That was great. Thank you. Uh, You're welcome. Yes, it answered all my questions. <laughs> okay, Tom, Good. the next questions come from Greg. Um, he has two questions, one on uh, difficulties on the spiritual path and some questions about his experiences. Greg? Um, yeah, so... Uh, let's see what I wrote here. What many models of spiritual development include a phase that is uh, experienced subjectively by the person going through it as, as negative. Uh, the most common term I've heard for this is the dark night of the soul. So I recently went through a phase like this and uh, it's kind of surprising because I thought I was kind of smoothly going along a good track and then just things just seemed really negative, even though I was trying to go in the right direction. 
Um, I think what happened mainly is that I began more clearly seeing some aspects of my ego. And this, this led to some uh, disgust of seeing that. And then also some internal turmoil and resistance as I, you know, wanted to get rid of it, but the ego was then was resisting more and more. So do you see these kind of patterns as being uh, something that's necessary to come up as we develop, or is there like a smoother way to go? Well, it depends on the individual. A few individuals just have a very smooth upward and onward path. Typically to learn something important takes a lot of work. Take some effort. It's not uh, really, you know, to change. You change when you learn these things. You're changing yourself at the being level. You're a different person when you grow up. It's not just a different set of understandings, but you are actually changed. And if you're not changed, then you're not really learning things that are real significant. So these these fundamental changes that take place inside of you, um, they often can have moments of trauma. And, you know, despair or uh, upset or questions or what in the heck is going on or where am I? Because those are questions that you need to answer. What's going on? Where am I? Who am I? Is this me acting like that? You know, is this, uh, you know, what, you know, what are my choices here? Until the choices become clear, you don't, you know, you don't necessarily have them in your decision space. What I mean by that is your decision space is all the choices that you know you have. They're all the choices that you can see. All right, I've got an issue, and I see 10 choices. Well, there may be 50 choices, but you only see 10 of them. And you may be missing the point and missing the point and missing the point and making the wrong choices because you only see 10 of them. And really where you want to go is in some other direction. Well, how are you ever going to see those other points? That, you know, how are you going to get them to come into view? And often just what you describe, you know, going through something that, uh, that uh, creates some drama, creates some, some, oh, no, or what's this? Those are the things that basically push you into a different set of choices where, where actually the answer lies, the choices that you, that you need to make. It lets you see the problem from a different perspective. And uh, yeah, dark night of the soul sounds pretty extreme. That's, that's where you get to the point that you see all darkness and all blackness and you just don't see that there's any way out and everything seems awful. And then while you sink to that very bottom, you suddenly let it go with your intellect. It's your intellect and your ego that spins around how awful and how dark and whatever. And once you get to the point where you think it can't get any worse, you tend to let go of it. And your intellect just sits back and goes, oh, hopeless. And as soon as you let go of it, suddenly lights start going off and you say, oh, well, maybe you know, I could go this way or go that way. And that's why some people have these great epiphanies and progress after they've had this dark night of the soul because it takes them that long to stop struggling with their ego and their self-pity and, and how about how awful everything is. And once they get there in that spot, suddenly other choices and other ways of thinking about it become more obvious. Whereas if they never got there, they just keep on keeping on with the same old set of choices, with the same old thing, and they really wouldn't be learning as quickly or as much as they should be. They have a greater capacity than that. They're kind of stuck in a, in a viewpoint, if you will. 
you can get stuck in viewpoints, and sometimes it takes something like this to blast you out of that that you know that set of viewpoints to look at the other you know the other forty of your choices rather than just the ten that you see now. So yeah, that's not unusual. A lot of people in their process, particularly early on in your process, you get that sort of thing happening to you. Eventually, that happens to you less and less. But still, uh, we tend to get in ruts. We tend to think we've kind of got it all under control. We tend to think, you know, we get on this, this kind of even keel and we're progressing right along and there's some things we're missing. There's ego and fear and things that we're just missing. And often the way you find out about those things that are missing is you get hit between the eyes with a tuba for that gives you a, a, a jolt into some other realization that now you can deal with it, whereas before you were you just weren't dealing with it. It was invisible. So I think that's what you're probably experiencing. And yes, it's just part of the process. And it may happen to you again and again, uh, and depends on the individual. Some individuals need more of that. Some individuals, unless you give them a good hard thump, just won't go too far out of their comfort zone. And if you stay in your comfort zone, you don't learn as much because you just keep thinking all those same things you've been thinking that you're comfortable with. So getting out of your comfort zone is something that some people do more easily. They just step right out of it, and other people need to kind of get take a hard bump to jar them out of it. So it depends on the people. Not everybody goes through that, but some people do. Some people need it more than others. It just depends on how you do uh go about uh, dealing with things, how easy it is for you to step out of the comfort zone and take hard looks as opposed to stay inside the comfort zone and take easy looks. So I'd say, yeah, it's a good sign. So it's, it's progress, and uh, as long as that leads you somewhere good, then it's good. But don't get stuck in any of these, these uh, you know, downturns or negative uh, jolts. You get stuck in them, then that's, that's not good at all. You need to see why. Why, you know, what's the, what's the fundamental thing here that's wrong with this? You know, and don't look outside for the answer. Look inside for the answer and see if you can't find it. And the more pain you feel, the more energy you usually have to find an answer, you know, to get out of it. So if, if, if there's no pain at all, often we don't look for answers until the pain comes. So. Yeah, maybe you're just one of those mules that needs to be hit in order to get your attention. <laughs> I don't know, but you're not alone. That's the way most people are. So uh, don't uh, don't feel bad about that. Just figure that's just the way life is, and uh, I'll I'll deal with it when I like when, when I get there. So yeah, that. I mean, that all sounds, sounds, you know, exactly what's going on. And then uh, the second question that I had on there is actually that I, I felt that uh, in the last couple of weeks, I might be coming to the end of that difficult part because I keep going through these phases where I will, uh, um, I have these really intense experiences where like, I feel like my, you know, my ego is getting wrapping up and wrapping up, like you're saying. And then all of a sudden, like you say, I give it up. And I'll have these experiences of like, uh, like in when I, in some dreams I had, where I like dropped into total nothingness and like saw the void of in, felt connected to everything. And like after that quiet was there, I felt 
amazing. It felt better than anything I had like ever felt before. And uh, a couple yeah. of times, this, this state of being will last a few days, even of, of feeling like I'm in the totally different state of consciousness than I than I've been before. And so now I'm like kind of popping back and forth. And I'm uh, my question then is like, how how do I solidify? Because every time I try to solidify the more higher state of being, it's really my intellect trying to do something, and then it doesn't really work. Right. You solidify it by being it, not by trying to uh, even so much understand it or parse it out in your head. You just live it by being it. You know when you're in that, you're in a different state of being. You see things differently. Uh, you uh, understand things differently. When, you, when you're in that uh, state, um, your interactions with people are different, and you see them differently. You feel their feelings. You're more connected to other people it's, it's a you know it's, it's that kind of a, of a of an experience and just just be it just become it and be it and those states will stay longer if you try to analyze it and think about it and say what should i do those states will stay less long they'll, they'll be shorter so it's not about thinking about it and deciding what it is you should do it's by just being it and uh, living it when you're in it don't stop. You're in that state. Just live that way. Be in that way, and eventually, that will be your permanent state. You'll just live that way all the time. And uh, it's it won't come and go. And yes, probably because you had that that uh, that hard spot. You know, is what gave you the is what gave you the the focus. You know, to change. No doubt that if you have one of these those hard spots that you're getting through that are really tough, that means you're looking at things that you really don't want to see when you have those those hard spots. And then when you see it, you accept it, you deal with it positively, now you get the result of dealing with it positively, and that's you see a whole new world that uh, looks different. And, yeah, just be in that world, and you'll see that if, if – if when you're there, you just say, well, that's me. This is really who I am. And just live it. It'll start to stay. Eventually, it's yours. You won't live any other way. Awesome. Sounds <laughs> like you're doing really good, Greg. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Um, Lawrence also has some questions for you on the state of our collective consciousness, on the afterlife, and on the past lives. Lawrence. Yes. Um, hey, Tom, how you doing? <laughs> oh, okay, Lawrence. You all right? Yep, I'm good. It's uh, nice to talk with you. Um, my first question was, given the physics of how the Twin Towers collapsed in New York from the attacks on September 11, 2001, do you think the buildings were wired with explosives to collapse in a classic demolition? being a physicist yourself does and does this event specify any particular stage in consciousness we may be in as a civilization so it's you know are, are we in a pivotal moment i mean i know that was 14 years ago but that's still something as um i think about it every day and it's something that affects me every day and i remember it uh, when it happened and I know that there's a lot of controversy ar ar around that. And I saw all of the uh, the uh, the now one one uh, documentaries and stuff. And so, um, 
and I've, I've saw just about every one of your videos about, you know, um, I know you was you are a physicist and stuff. And so I wanted to, to get an opinion from a professional about what really happened, because I have my own personal opinions. But I would just like to know from from a real physicist and a consciousness explorer, you know. OK, I have seen I have seen some of those uh, videos as well and some of those explanations. And as a uh, scientist, and I guess physicist maybe is a little more practical, probably a construction, uh, a uh, structural engineer or a uh, uh, mechanical engineer would be probably your best expertise because they understand buildings and how, they, how they're made and where the supports are and how they fall and that kind of stuff. So that kind of an engineer would probably be your, be your, your most... Uh, uh, able to look at it from a technical viewpoint and tell you how that how that worked but from my viewpoint of as a physicist of course I understand you know how the physical world works even if I'm not an expert in construction and building like civil engineers are it did seem to me when I looked at it that the people in the, doing that video had a really good point the building looked like it dropped exactly the same way buildings drop when they're taken down with explosives. I mean, you see the picture of a building being dropped on purpose someplace, then you see the way the other one dropped, and they pointed out that, see how the corners pop up and the center goes down and, the, you know, and that sort of thing, and they did look very, very similar. But I caution you on coming to conclusions without a lot of information. You see, just because it looked just like a, a, a building taken down with demolition doesn't mean that there's no other thing that could possibly make a building do that. We know explosives will make a building do that, but could something else? You see, so now you have to look at all the other possibilities uh, of how it might have happened. And I would say the, the, the thing there is you're not going to know for sure. You're never going to come out with a, this is what happened, until people who know things actually come out and talk about it because they were there and experienced it and were a part of it. You see, without that kind of, of you know, firsthand information, all we can do is look at the evidence and take guesses. And don't believe, don't believe anything. Be open-minded and be skeptical. So you can look at all that, as I did, and you can say, well, maybe. That makes sense. I can see that it could be that way. And you can say, oh, I'll give it a probability of such and such, but don't be tempted to give it a probability of one because there's just a lot we don't know about those details. You know, so that's, that's what I would say. So, yes, very interesting uh, Definitely got my attention as well. Um, seems like there's a connection, but there may be other explanations that we don't know about. Now, one that they tried to say was that the main supports, the way those buildings are built, there's a real sturdy columns of steel running right up through them. Not just one column in the middle, but several. These real strong things. And then the rest of it is... Is just um, what do you call it? Just very superficial. You know that's why these big buildings can look. You look at them and they're all glass. 
And you say, my goodness, how can they support that big building with walls that are just made out of glass? You know, glass just isn't that strong. Well, the buildings are made out of these real heavy, you know, steel inner structures. And then the outer walls are basically like paper. You know, they're just glass and sheetrock or, you know, plastic or whatever they are. But that's not where the loads are. The, 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 the loads bearing forces are all in on these big, heavy steel structures. Okay, now, what they do when they use uh, explosives is they cut those steel structures. They basically take out a, you know, a six-foot piece of the steel structure, and they do it all around all the steel structures that are in there all at the same time so it falls straight down. And once it has the momentum of falling down, it just keeps on going straight down. And that's how they make those demolitions. They have to have them fall straight down because there's other buildings and other things around. They don't want them to fall over. You know, you don't want them to fall over like this because then they do a lot of collateral damage. So that's the, the deal. Now, the explanation on the other side of that was that the high-octane jet fuel burned at those, at those sites of those support centers enough that they got weak. And they all burned at around the same rate because a lot of support centers were in the middle and then they, they, you know, they're outside. So if you have a lot of jet fuel burning that they got weak and when they got weak, the weight above them collapsed and you had a similar thing. You had the top 20 stories of the building above where the plane hit or however many were up there, 10 stories. The planes didn't hit at the very top. They still had a bunch of stories up above them. And when that happened, those things gave away because they got weak and then that drop down and that that acceleration picks up energy as it goes and it just crushed everything underneath of it. Now I heard other experts say, yeah, well those those that fire couldn't have couldn't have weakened those beams and you have all this, but now you're in a technical area of just how thick were those beams and how many of them were there and the rest of it. I personally not qualified. I don't know about all of that. So now you have experts that are arguing both sides both sides of that problem. And I would say, well, um, interesting. I see the possibilities. Um, I'm open-minded to those possibilities. And that's it. I don't have a one or a zero as far as the conclusion. So I have no beliefs about it at all. But I also have seen what you've seen, and I find it, you know, interesting information. Certainly worth studying. And uh, you'd have to actually have the plans of that building know how it was built, know the materials it was built. You'd have to have the properties of that fuel. You'd have to know exactly how it sprayed out in there. And nobody's going to know that. You know, that just was a random thing that happened. However, that plane broke apart, it just broke apart. And yeah. uh, it was just taking off, so it had full tanks. So there's lots of things we don't know about it. So that's, that's what I say. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, a lot of possibilities. Could be the way they say could be different. Uh, don't know, but uh, I'll wait for more information. Yeah, and I, I just want to say to conclude on it on this question was that um, you know, like they talked to the, the the firefighters and the people that was actually there, like when all this happened, and um, uh, people who've done demolitions and and people saying that that a uh, uh, plain jet fuel can't melt steel. And that the the twin towers they had like fifty core columns in it, and that the what gives it away that it was a demolition is that the the, the planes can't free. I mean, uh, the the towers can't free fall 
how they did due to just yeah. a, a plane impact and that the the architects, you know, it's like four fourteen hundred architects and engineers and stuff saying like for instance, like the uh the the the, the firefighters and stuff that were there once the, the, the two towers collapsed said that they saw molten lava running through the the, the um through the through the uh, uh, steel yeah. rail or whatever, and we know that that uh, right. jet fire can't can't melt that hot can't burn hot well, enough the, to. The thing I'd ask you about that is, do you know that as a fact that jet fuel is not doesn't burn hot enough? You know, I heard him say that too, but I don't know that. You see, anybody can say anything. So when you get those kinds of things, you can't necessarily accept that as fact. Does jet fuel burn high enough? Well. Here's an expert. He says no. Somebody else says yes. I'm unqualified to tell you which one of those is telling the truth. So those are the kind of things I mean. Yes, there's lots of things there. You have people standing around who are popping noises, which was like uh, maybe explosions going off. But then what else can what else can create popping noises? Well, there's probably other things that can do that, and so on. You have all this this uh, you know these things that were said, but Unless you really know the inside facts of that, unless you are competent to talk about the energy in jet fuel, then it's just an opinion that somebody had said and you heard, and you just have to say, well, maybe all that's true, and that'll move my probability, you know, a little up this way or a little down that way because there's all this corroborative evidence. The other big thing was Building 7. Building 7 that also looked like it was taken down with explosives and it wasn't hit by anything, right? So there's these other things, and you have to look at all of that information and say what's going on, then set your probability of what you, know, what you think might have happened, most likely, that's your probability, and then keep it open for further information. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's worth jumping to a 1 or a, or a 0. The 1 says, oh, yeah, it was all taken down by explosives. Zero says nonsense. There weren't any explosives. So that's the one and the zero. A belief, you know, a belief and a disbelief. Well, I'd say look at all the information. Come up with where you think it is on the scale and then be open for more information. But don't jump to any final conclusions because there's a lot of things that we don't know. We as individuals don't have the information. And there was other, yeah, I, I watched all the same videos. I, I know that all the the stuff that's that's in there, but it's a lot of information, and there's a lot of evidence, and it's not necessarily conclusive, but it does point in a direction. So just open-minded, yes, always be open-minded. The people who aren't open-minded are the ones that get shocked when they find out answers that they didn't, you know, believe. So stay open-minded, but don't. Don't come to a conclusion that's hard and fast. Just come to a probability. Yeah, and it seems it seems as though is that um that they they were sorry about that they were taken down by demolition because they they were firefighters that that when the planes hit and and people like test uh, people that that worked in the buildings for fifteen twenty years and stuff and testimonies of people. They're saying that, you know, like the plane hit on like the 88th floor or something like that, but there's explosions going off on the first floor. And the way that the buildings were made, that we know that the jet fuel couldn't have ran down that fast to affect, you know, like the lobbies and the core columns from the lobbies and stuff were, were blown up. And uh, well, be, yeah, take, take caution. You say it seems uh, 
okay, make sure you have the seams, and that we know that these things couldn't have happened. Well, people have told us that, but we actually don't know that. You know, at least that's the way I feel about it. You know, I don't know that all those things. I listen to all those people, but you know, you have to be very careful about what you, <laughs> you know, about the information you get, particularly on the internet. So anyway, yeah, I think we've probably done this enough, but. Uh, just come to a probability, and that'll be your own. And uh, be very careful about assuming that things are true because somebody tells you on both sides of that argument. Uh, my second question was: uh, when when a person transitions from this reality into the afterlife reality frame, is there a particular non-physical entity that has to tell them that that they've just died? I know that we talked about when one transitions from uh, one reality frame into another, they're told that, yes, you, you have died and that you have transitioned um, from the physical matter reality. And I was wondering that during this okay. transition... Let me just answer that one. We'll take them one at a time. Otherwise, you're going to back up so many questions in a row, I won't be able to remember what it was you asked. So uh, when that one, no. Nobody needs to meet them and tell them that they've died. That's not a requirement. That only happens if somebody has enough anxiety over what's going on that they need that reassurance that they're okay, that uh, everything's all right now. Yeah, you're not in that reality anymore. You're in a different one. And that, all these are reassuring words, somebody. If you don't need any of that reassurance because you know exactly what's going on, you've been and done it a few hundred times, and uh, you're okay with it, then nobody needs to meet and greet and, and uh, show you your relatives and tell you that everything's fine because you just don't need that sort of hand-holding anymore. So it's not a requirement. It's only done as it's, as it's needed because a lot of people, when they die, come awake and they're someplace else and that's scary and they have a lot of anxiety over what's going on where am i and what is this place and you know how did i get here and all these other things and a little bit of of gentle hand holding there is real helpful to get them to not wind up into hysteria but wind down into acceptance so that's that's why that happens a lot but it doesn't have to happen no, it's not a requirement or anything so those people who don't need that bypass all of the all of that processing in they just bypass it because that's not that's not necessary i see and and during the transition period um is, is there a point where uh I, I i was trying to wonder if if all right so you're saying that like if if somebody is well evolved then and and they've been through this experience quite a few times once they transition over to that reality no one needs to know non-physical entity needs to, to come into their reality and say, oh, hey, you know, you just died from this reality and now you're here. They probably already kind of know the instructions and what they're supposed to do and what choices them as an individual needs right. to, all right, to continue. And so my, right. my, question then, my question then was that during this transition period, at what point does one forget who they previously were? You know, like if, if somebody is well-evolved or maybe not that much evolved, is it fair to say that that when we're in this afterlife reality, do we have to, to die from that non-physical reality to be, again, born again into the physical matter reality? Where, where, no. So, oh, right. yeah, no, not, it's, not, it's not quite like that. Uh, so when you 
become aware that you're that you're in. A, this is after your your avatars died, and you, the consciousness, now are in a process of transitioning from what I call the free will awareness unit, okay, back to the individuated unit of consciousness, your parent unit. The free will awareness unit just being a subset of the individuated unit of consciousness. So when your your uh, avatar dies, your free will awareness unit, which is the piece of consciousness that's making the choices, right, is a subset of this individuated unit of consciousness. Well, that subset now is going to integrate back into that, you know, to the superset, to the individuated unit of consciousness. So that's the transition that's really going on. And to make that a smoother transition, sometimes you can be met and sometimes your hand can be held, but it doesn't have to be. Now, what happens is that you begin to forget the reality that you just left, just like you begin to forget a dream. At first, it's very clear. You know, a little bit later, it's dim. A little bit later than that, it's much dimmer. And before long, it's kind of a vague memory. You know, you have dreams that you've had, and you think back at them, and you kind of remember having the dream, but you don't really have much of the details anymore. You just kind of have a very vague sense of the whole dream. That's sort of what you what you end up with uh, fairly quickly. It doesn't take a long. It's just like waking up from a dream. You know, how long does it take you before your dreams are just vague and or before they're very detailed? That's that sort of thing. Now, if you have, like, an out-of-body experience, not a dream, then they never go vague. It's just experience, like any other experience. It doesn't, it doesn't fade away. Those things stay with you, you know, and some dreams might stay with you as well. But mostly, when we dream, we let the dream go, and before long, we don't really remember any of the details. We just remember a, a few of the broad things about it, and then we even forget about those. So that's the way it is. It's not an instantaneous process. At some point, it just disappears. It's just a, a slow uh, disappearance. Now, if you come in obsessed with something, you're totally obsessed with something you were in the middle of, say, when your avatar got run over by a truck, and that obsession now is running around in your mind, well, you may hang on to that a fairly long time. You may hang on to that because you're really putting a lot of energy into that. But eventually that'll go away, and with a little hand-holding to distract you to other things, you kind of let go of that, and it, that'll disappear too. So it kind of depends. Now, you may retain more or less of it. It just depends on whether it's valuable to you to do that. Is it going to be valuable for you to retain certain parts of it? Will that help you in your further evolution? If so, you'll probably retain some parts of it. If not, you won't. You see, so it is a very individual thing. The process is made to optimize everybody's uh, growth. So exactly what you remember about it and what you don't depends on is it going to be helpful to you? What's the probability of it being helpful to you? If the probability is low, then that tends to be stuff that you forget quickly. If the probability is high, that will be helpful to you. That may be some little tidbit that you, you keep you take with you, because that will be helpful to you. For the most part, there's not a lot that's going to be helpful to you. You start a new, a new thing, and, and the old is gone, and you have to re-express yourself in another avatar, and uh, you don't want a lot of baggage. But, you know, again, it's not hard and fast. It depends on the, on the individual.
uh, let's see, it was the last that. Um, no, you don't have to uh, die in the afterlife to get back into the physical reality. You might use that as a metaphor, but what, but it's not really a fact. It's not like here you are walking around in the afterlife and now you fall over and now you have a you know a, a, a dead uh, non-physical corpse lying there. You know, it's not like that at all. You are you are a, a free will awareness unit. You reintegrate with the individual unit of consciousness. And then when you get back into it, that individuated unit of consciousness partitions off another part of itself, another subset that becomes the free will awareness unit. It has only the being level information, doesn't have any of the intellectual information, and it starts over with no experience, just a being level quality, and it starts over with a new avatar and has to learn from the ground up how to express its quality within the limits of that new avatar. See, okay. so that's so, that's so the way me, that works. So, um, quality of consciousness also. I see in the sense you know, like, so, uh, is reincarnation sort of like someone? Okay, we're gonna have to scratch that. That audio, Lawrence, I'll read the question for you. All right. Lawrence's question is, when we reincarnate back into physical matter reality with a new biology, how much of our original consciousness from the past life do we retain? We only retain the being level quality of, the, of our individuated unit of consciousness. We don't, reclaim, we don't retain any of the intellectual information just the being level quality, just the, the substance, the essence of that being. That's it. So now I'm saying that when I say that's it, I'm not, you know, don't extrapolate this to every possible, uh, you know, occurrence. I'm talking about what happens under the fat part of the curve, you know, what is normal, what's typical, what usually happens. There can always be exceptions. There's, there's almost nothing that an that a, that a information system can't do. But for most of the part, all you get when you come in again is the quality of the source that you come from. You are now another free will awareness unit, and you have the quality of your parent, the individuated unit of consciousness. That's all you bring. No intellect. No intellectual information. Just being level information about your quality. Then you get to express that quality now in a new avatar. Okay, um, and let's see, um, the next was, could quality of consciousness also be looked at as a personality? And that's, no, it's not really a personality. You can have a high quality of consciousness in all sorts of personalities, and you can have a low quality of consciousness in all sorts of personalities. So I wouldn't equate it with a personality, although it does affect personality, obviously, if you're very loving and, and giving and, uh, you know, caring, compassionate person, then, you know, that's going to affect your personality. But whether you're an introvert or an extrovert or however else the personalities are, are taken apart, you can be loving and caring and have all sorts of personalities. Um, so, yes, it affects it, but they're not just the same thing. And then the last one is reincarnation. Uh, sort of uh, someone dressing up as a different person but still retaining who they previously were. No, not 
it's, you know, yes and no. They retain who they previously were in the sense they retain the quality. As far as retaining the attributes of how that quality was expressed, in other words, the individual personality that of, of that particular individual, no. They're just expressing their quality now within a new set of constraints, which is their new avatar. All right. Um, last question. Is it possible to go to a past life regression therapist to find out who you were in a past life? Is this a credible option worth trying? Um, if one is curious about who they were in a past life, is there a way one could go to those memories um, in their consciousness and from a certain meditation or out-of-body state? Okay. Um, you could go to a regression therapist. And if you went to a good one, uh, you'd probably find some information. You'd get something back about previous lives. Now, is this uh, objective information or not? You see, it's kind of the question. Well, we don't really know that unless you can take that information and go find out whether that was you know, whether that actually happened, then it's probably objective. In other words, if you could say, like a little boy did, if you could say, oh, yeah, I was an airplane pilot, and I flew this plane on this date. I got shot down at this time. Uh, my name was such and such, and uh, I was so many years old when that happened. And now you can go look up the record and see, indeed, if there was a pilot that flew that kind of plane at that time with that name, you know, who, you know, have these characteristics, you know. So if you get that kind of detailed information that you can check, and you can go check it, then you can say, well, that seems to be uh, pretty good information. You know for sure still whether it's accurate, whether you actually did that? Well, you still don't know for sure. You see, what I'm saying is in subjective communications, you'd never have a one or a zero. But if you get that kind of verification, you could say, well, that's pretty good. I'll, I'll give that a 9, you know, a point nine, because uh, that's pretty good. Otherwise, I was having somebody else's information. You know, I just get information. You don't necessarily know that it couldn't have been somebody else's life, not yours, and somehow you got that one by mistake, or that one uh, just came to you uh, out of the database. or You never know for sure. So, But if you get that kind of corroboration, it's a pretty good chance that that's pretty objective. It's a pretty good probability. So we'll make that a 0.9 or maybe even a 0.99. If you don't, if you get things that you just can't corroborate because there's a lot of information that's just impossible to corroborate, you know, you weren't some individual that did something that history took a record of and that 100 years later you're going to look up. You know, most of us don't do things that significant that uh, historians 100 years later will be, you know, will have our information there about what we did. Most of what we do in a day isn't that reportable or that significant that historians will take a note of it and, and save it. So you may have information that you get that you can't check on. Well, that information may or may not be objective. Again, the point is, can you use it? Is it something that is usable for you? Can you make something out of it? Does it solve a problem you have? Does it explain something, some inclination, some proclivity you have? Is there some reason for uh, you know, pursuing that? And if it does help you, help you, then uh, 
Good, take that information and use it. Again, the source isn't that important. That's not the key here is the, is the source of the information. You know, can we get it and is it right? Well, we can get information and if you get a therapist that will regress you, you will get some information. The point is, use it if you can. Let it go if you can. If all you do is want to be entertained by it, oh, I want to know what I was because I think that'd be cool, then there's really no point because you're not going to get anything usable from being entertained. And it's expensive probably to get a good therapist to do that for you. So, uh, you know, if it's, if it's entertainment, I'd say don't waste your time on it. Don't worry about it. Don't, uh, it isn't that important. If there is some particular issue you have that you think there may be a connection that you might learn something important, well, then go see if you get some information that helps you. If you get information that helps you, that's great. Use it. If you don't, let it go. So the whole idea of the past lives and, and, uh, and so on is just not that useful most of the time. It's more entertaining than it is useful. And could you do this? Can you get it yourself? You don't need a therapist to do it. Yes, you can get it yourself. You can just ask the question. Make a connection with the larger consciousness system and just say, I'd like to look at my past lives. How about the last one, the one before that? Give me pictures. You know, give me audio. I'd like, to, I'd like to see it. And you'll get pictures and you'll get audio. Do you know whether that's objective? No. There's no way to turn the subjective into the objective. Just decide whether it is significant to you or not significant to you. If it's not significant to you, then you don't have to bother with it. So that's the, I think that's the best answer I can give you to that, uh, that question.